0: Good morning, Trinity. Feels a little different with the microphone on, and I have free hands. Um, But it is truly a pleasure to preach God's word this morning. For those that don't know me, uh, my name is Bobby Hamlet, and I'm one of the pastor elders here. And Tim asked if I could give a little bit of a background on my family. Um, As he mentioned, we were in Thailand uh, for roughly 10 years. Uh, We served as missionaries with an organization called Campus Outreach. And we served in the city of Kwon Thailand. We served alongside both Thai nationals and foreign missionaries. So we had people giving us input from the Thai side and from the foreign side, which was really neat. And we returned from the field in 2019. And Trinity has been our home church ever since. And we are so thankful. And so I just say all this to kind of give you some context. Um, because some of the illustrations I'm going to use today will be about living in Thailand, and I want to make sure you all have the right kind of context for where I'm going. All right, but I'm a teacher at Cocoa High School, so I like to open up with some, uh, kind of engaging stuff, and so I'd like to know, by a show of hands, how many of you are, or have been, or are educators in some sense? So could you raise your hands? Educators. Educators. Of some context. Okay, that's a lot. Wow. Okay. I uh, feel a little intimidating speaking before teachers. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'd also like to know how many of you have been employed or are employed in either the space industry or some level of engineering? Wow. That is a lot. So I get the privilege and the honor and the terrifying <laughs> uh, feelings of preaching before <laughs> uh, I, what I call chickens. As well as rocket scientists. So there's no pressure there. Um, But lastly, by a show of hands, how many of you uh, have been a part of the women's Bible studies here at Trinity Community Church? Wow. Okay. That's probably the most intimidating. (laughs) Out of all of those groups, I think. Because if you don't know, guys, our women study the Bible deeply. And my wife comes home with questions, and I'm like, yep, never knew that. And so super thankful for our women's ministry. But guys, all these groups, I just want you to know, church, ultimately, I have the privilege and tremendous honor to preach before the God of the universe, and that is a huge thing. So no matter who stands up here, standing before the Lord of the universe and preaching his word is a tremendous weighty thing, and so I want you to know I don't take that lightly. And I thank you so much for all of you who are praying. I mean, just yesterday, Jeff Thompson just lays his big hands on me and is praying, and it is such a blessing. So, with that, let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your precious word. God, we come before you today, and we want to hear you speak. God, I pray you just get me out of the way, and that, Lord, you'd guide my words. And, Lord, you would speak to your church. And so, Lord, if I say anything contrary to Scripture or just doesn't make sense. I pray that it would fall to the ground and not be remembered. So Lord, please open the hearts of your people today. And would you speak to us? To you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So my family and I, we had, we've recently visited a unique place, a place where people come from all over the world to visit. It's a place that was birthed around a vision of bringing people together, people of different cultures. Even new technology was a part of this. And the visionary, one of my childhood heroes, the visionary behind this magical world desired to create something so unique that it would leave the world marveling. This place would be a blueprint for communities all over the world. And what place am I talking about? You might have guessed it. Yeah, some of you got it. That's right. But actually, it's the Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, which stands for Epcot. Epcot. And just so happens, my buddy, Mr. Wade, and his wife, who got my family in, he's here today. So thank you, Mr. Wade. That's awesome. Um, but I, want, I don't want to just tell you about Epcot. I want Walt Disney to tell you about Epcot. So let's go back to 1966, and you can find the video on YouTube. And this is what Walt Disney said. And where do we go from these preliminary plans and sketches? Well, a project like this is so vast in scope that no company alone can make it a reality. But if we can bring together the technical know-how of American industry and the creative imagination of the Disney organization, I'm confident that we can create right here in Disney World a showcase to the world of the American free enterprise. I believe we can build a community that more people will, come up, will talk about and come to look at than any other area in the world. And with your cooperation, I'm sure this experimental prototype community of tomorrow can influence the future of city living for generations to come. It's an exciting challenge, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. So that was Walt Disney in 1966. Some of you were around back then. Some of us, we're not. (laughs) But um, Walt Disney's vision never came to be as he intended. The current Epcot, as amazing as it is, is but a figment, sorry for the Disney pun, of what he'd hoped for, right? Disney's vision for Epcot was a real-life community that would be united around one man's vision to create something different, something to be modeled after. And I bring this story to mind because I believe in today's text. We will see another man of a different kingdom, this time not a magical kingdom, but a man who also had a dream, and as we've learned over the last couple weeks, right, and a man who had the vision to create a spectacle that would gather and unite peoples. It is against this backdrop that we will see how the ideas and idols of man fall grossly short of the all-surpassing glory of God and how he alone is worthy of our worship. All right, so to give you some context, where we've been, if, you, if you're new or just haven't been here, we learned of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right? King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and he ruled, right? He was the top dog. And he had this dream and subsequent rage, when he could not find someone to interpret his dream, right? But then Daniel, a young Hebrew man, interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Daniel's interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar's, he interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold. But we know that the king did not worship and submit to Daniel's dream because, as it says in chapter 2, verse 8, truly your God is a God of God's. But today we're going to see very clearly how the king is not yet humbled by his experience with the dream and Daniel's interpretation from chapter 2. And you may wonder, where's Daniel in all this? Guys, I'm just going to leave it short and simple. Bible doesn't say, and we don't know. So Daniel somewhere, all right? But let's dive into the text. Daniel 3, verses 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, its breadth was 6 cubits. He set it on the plain of Dura. In the province of Babylon, then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so what we see from these early verses is my first point. It is worship of the created over the creator. Worship of the created over the creator. So you have these peoples gathered around an image. Nebuchadnezzar has his 90 foot, the cubits thing, is 90 feet high by roughly 10 feet wide. The image of gold. And he doesn't just create it, he gathers people around. Do we know, was this, was this Nebuchadnezzar the statue? We don't know. Was it maybe his God? Maybe. Scripture doesn't say But what was clear and repeated six times is that King Nebuchadnezzar was the one who set it up. It was his idea. And he doesn't just have it built, but then calls for the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, justices, and magistrates, all the officials, to its dedication. It uses that repetition twice. I don't know if you heard when Tim read the scripture earlier, but all those over and over. We're going to see at the end how that plays out. But this was no little event. There weren't just local officials, but all of the leading officials throughout the empire. As verse 3 references peoples, nations, and languages. King Nebuchadnezzar was trying to bring unity to his kingdom with this public event centered around his statue of gold. And what's interesting is verse 1 says it was built on the plain of Dura in Babylon. And this is significant because in Genesis 11... The people gathered on the Babylonian plain to construct the Tower of Babel. You remember the story, right? The people came together and they were building this tower and then God confused their languages and they spread out all over the earth. But one Bible commentator mentions that what was happening here in Daniel was like a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Now, peoples of different languages and nations who were once scattered were now being brought back together. And Ian Duguid connects these two themes seen in the Tower of Babel and Nebuchadnezzar's image. He says, Nebuchadnezzar's statue had the same two goals in mind. It was designed to establish a lasting testimony to his glory and to provide a unifying focus of the kingdom. This occasion was a public statement of the unity of Nebuchadnezzar's empire which was rooted in common worship of his image. A religious unity which he was willing to enforce with a threat of death if necessary. And so, guys, what we, church, what we've just heard, what we've just read about, this giant statue of gold isn't just something you see in ancient Babylon. Guys, it's still happening in our world today. As Katie and I lived in the nation of Thailand, and we love Thailand. We love Thai food. We still make sticky rice every Saturday morning. We love Thailand. Um, we were confronted with large idols similar to the ones we hear about in this story. They are a, very much a part of life in Thailand. We've actually seen bigger statues than 90 feet by 10 feet. Some of the biggest statues in the world are located in Thailand. And that culture is open to religions of all kinds, but much of Thai culture is ingrained in worship to physical idols, and then ancestors and also spirits. So I have a picture. I'll give you a little context, a little story. Uh, I remember going with a man and his running group to run a 10K. This man taught me more about discipleship, uh, and he wasn't a believer, but he taught me about bringing people in, in loving people, and just doing life with people. He he sees me on the street and says, hey, you want to come running? And so we went running, and I ran for a period of years with this man, and we were going to a 10K run. And it happened to be a Buddhist temple fundraiser, which I was unaware of. Uh, <laughs> and as we all lined up for the race, all of a sudden this monk comes out, just shaking this thing, and water's going everywhere. And I'm just like, kind of, what is going on here, right? I've never experienced anything like that. But, you know, it's, it's ingrained in certain cultures of our world, right? Of worship, of images, of worship, of idols. And so I want us to come back to Daniel. Chapter 3, and think about this scenario. You have music playing. People are bowing down. And maybe they're glad to. Maybe they love the kingdom. They love Babylon, and they are just passionate about it. Or maybe they're indifferent to the statue, but everyone else is doing it, so I might as well bow down too. Right? But whatever their motives, they just do it. Could you imagine just witnessing all these people bowing before this idol? How tragic, church. Could you imagine just looking out and seeing these people bowing down before idols? Would it not break your heart? God, guys, Daniel and his friends, they had history with God. Remember? Vegetables in chapter 1, right? The dream in chapter 2. They knew of how amazing their God was. And they knew their God was real. Wouldn't you, if you were there, just want to say something like, hey, over here, God, he's real. He's real. You don't have to bat down to this thing. But church, wouldn't your heart ache? And as, guys, as we consider the lost world around us, all of their idols, even the ones of gold, may we not look on them with disdain or self-righteous judgment for their idolatry. But may our hearts be broken that they have exchanged the worship of the creator for the created things. And I want us to think about our workplace. I want us to think about our neighborhoods, our social clubs, where we hang out. So many need Christ all around us. Guys, every day I get to stand at my door at Coco High School, and I love Cocoa High School. I stand at my door and I look out and at times my heart just breaks over the students and the faculty and the staff. And my heart breaks because the majority of them do not know the God who loves them and cares for them. And so, do you view the people in your life in the same way? Or sometimes are you like me and you just think about the next email, the next problem, the next assignment, the next thing you've got to fix? I know I've been there many times. I am there. So, Christians, as we know we are saved by God's grace, We know if it was not for God's great love and grace, we would be on a similar path. So I don't want us to think about the lost in a way that exalts us Christians as having it all together. We too, like King Nebuchadnezzar, exalt things and people over the God of the universe too. And I think it's good for us to look at our own hearts. And the true star of the Super Bowl, uh, I think she said it well when she said, it's me, hi. It's over, you got, finish the line for me. I'm the problem, it's me. Taylor Swift, right? Taylor Swift famously said, if you don't know that song, good for you, it won't be stuck in your head. Um, but the problem's us, right? Our idols. An idol is anything that captures our hearts. Anything that we give excess devotion to. Anything that replaces God as our greatest joy. And I find Jared Wilson helpful here. And we're going to see him at the Grace Partnership Conference in a couple weeks. But he says this. Maybe you don't think of worship as something you're already doing all the time. But the reality is that we worship. We give worth in any given moment to whatever our lives are centered on in that moment. So the question is not whether am I worshiping, but what am I worshiping now? So in a way, our hearts are always in a state of worship. And all too often, we are just like Nebuchadnezzar's. Nebuchadnezzar we just don't have all the bells and whistles and power and prestige that he does right we can have a tendency to see ourselves more like Daniel Shadrach Meshach and Abednego when really we're probably a lot more like King Nebuchadnezzar we too desire control right we too desire to be exalted and praised by men and we too can rage when we don't get our way we de- we too desire to bring people around our great efforts. Ultimately, we desire to be king over our lives, and this can be seen clearly in our current culture of social media. Right? We desire to look a certain way to the world, and we're all guilty of it. If you're on social media, right? We desire the likes, the comments, the views. We may not create a statue ninety feet high by ninety uh, by ten feet wide, but we wouldn't mind. 90,000 followers on Instagram, I mean Instagram, right? We would not mind to have such a following. But we don't need social media to show how consumed we can be with our own hearts. Just think about how we sometimes engage in conversation, and I'm guilty as anybody, when we always make it about us, right? Or maybe we never think we're wrong. We've been that person. But maybe an idol for you is making a certain amount of money having a certain type of house, being recognized. How about politics? We're getting into political season. If you don't agree with me, I can't make you bow down to an image, but I might just, you're pretty much dead to me, right? That's sometimes how we can be. I can't cast you, well, um, yeah. An idol could even be our children, Right, for those of us parents, we desire for them to have the life and experiences that we never had. So we load them up with activities and sports so that they will be well-rounded. An idol could even be a relationship, like a desire to get married that constantly consumes our minds. And even could be something as simple as comfort and convenience. This is easy for us parents to see, right? And parents, you know, because sometimes when our kids don't behave, we go all Nebuchadnezzar on them in our anger. Actually, I really should say to the children, especially the older children who are here, you know, right? I know Eli and Sarah who are here. They know uh, how we can be as parents, right? But that can even be an idol. You're not submitting to my, uh, my thoughts or my comfort convenience. But no matter the idol, when we elevate things to such a high level that they become more important to God, we are in sin. And so... Yes, God help us. None of us are exempt from this tendency. We should be constantly examining our hearts and praying for God to expose our idols. Well, let's read on, guys. Let's read on. Verses 8 through 15. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, "'Bagpipe and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. "'And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, burning, fiery furnace. "'There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, "'Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. "'These men, O king, pay no attention to you. "'They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. "'Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought.' And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Point number two, worship when put to the test. Worship when put to the test. So King Nebuchadnezzar has this big decree, right? He hasn't just set up the statue, but now everybody's got to come and bow down to it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego couldn't hide. They were called out by name because of an accusation from the Chaldeans. Possibly these... Chaldeans were jealous of these young men. They were like foreign hotshots, right? These guys from out of the country and they're here and now they're raised to a high position. But the young Jewish men were called out by name. And then they were brought before the king. The most powerful ruler in the world, the one who could have them executed immediately. The king's decree is one of life and death, it is essentially bow or die. A fiery furnace awaited them if they didn't obey the king. And notice the king's arrogance. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? King Nebuchadnezzar almost seems to be elevating himself to the level of a god. And Tim Keller points out it's it's important to understand that the culture of Babylon accepted many gods. There was no problem for these young Hebrew men to worship their own god... Right? We know from the previous chapters, King Nebuchadnezzar already acknowledged the Hebrew God and knew he was powerful. But the young men were also to acknowledge this golden statue before the king. There was no choice. It just reminds me of 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I want to illustrate this with just a story, but I got to stand before the president of the United States once. And I was at a graduation ceremony, and I remember the strange feeling of walking up to that stadium, going through metal detectors, looking up and seeing armed guards standing very high with guns. There was just a weight to it. It felt different, more different than anything I'd ever experienced before. And some strange things kind of go through your head, right? Like, if I cough too loudly, if I throw my hat and celebrate too loud, are they going to be like guns aimed at me? Like, it's just a different feeling. But the most powerful man in the world was standing right in front of me. And he could have me killed in an instant. It does make you pause and think. Remember, as Tim mentioned a few weeks ago, these were young men standing before the most powerful ruler in the world, and he was threatening their lives if they didn't submit. It had to be terrifying. They could have easily just backed out. King was even giving them a second chance. But I want us to see that we, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're going to be pressured by this world to conform. And we will be put to test in some ways. So Christian, in our current Babylon, you will be tested. The culture in which we live has grown more hostile to the Christian faith. Most likely you won't be challenged to bow down before a man-made golden statue. But if you live in certain parts of the world, you might. But you will be challenged to go along with the world's ideals and values. You will be confronted with choices to obey God or obey man. And when pressured to conform, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up. But these young men weren't just standing up because they didn't like the government. They weren't just standing up because they didn't like who was in charge, right? They had a reason to stand. They knew the truth. They knew God. And they knew that God alone was worthy of their worship. They didn't bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar or the pressure they even felt, maybe because everyone else was bowing down. But they had a reason to stand. And it was God. So they answered the king. Point number three, worship no matter the outcome. Worship no matter the outcome. But if not, what a powerful statement. These young men understood that the God of the universe could save them or he could choose not to. But either way, they would not bow. They would take their stand. They were willing to give up their very lives in obedience to God, no matter what. Their act of defiance to the king of Babylon was an act of worship and submission to the true king of the universe. Sometimes, church, our words or actions for Christ will cause the world to hate or even revile us. Yet God doesn't call us to obey only if it looks like it's going to go well. He sometimes calls us to obey even when it might cost us relationships, money, passion, position, or even our lives. What a powerful demonstration of worship from these young Hebrew men. Church, I heard a recent story of a Christian teacher in England. He went out street preaching and shared his biblical views on sexuality and it was recorded and he lost his job. In our current culture, That could be me. That could be you. By God's grace, may we trust the Lord, even if it costs us greatly. And so like we too, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, will be required to trust God when the outcome is uncertain and when it really could end up looking bad in the world's perspective. So church, God may be calling you to a challenging situation, and you have no clue how it's going to end up, No matter the outcome, your act in obedience and submission to God is an act of worship. Remember, church, we've read the story, Daniel 3. We know what happens. Remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't know they'd be delivered. They knew that God could, and they just knew they were to obey. It's helpful to know that the God of the universe is the one who gave them the grace to stand. He was the one who gave them the grace to obey, even if it meant their lives were at stake. And the same God will give you the grace to do whatever he's calling you to do, no matter the outcome. Praise him. All right, let's read on. Verses 19 through 23. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was charged against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. So this picture, the king is furious. He is enraged, then has them thrown into the furnace. It seems initially like the young men were not delivered, right? They said, we're going to take our stand," and then they still get thrown in, right? But isn't it ironic that the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, mocks God by saying, what God will deliver you out of my hands? And then he cannot save his own men from death by the fire. Doesn't this even remind you of Jesus being mocked by soldiers in Matthew 27, 42, when when the soldier said, he saved others, he cannot save himself. So what happens? Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He delivered to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Amazing. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are alive and walking in the fire. I wonder what they were, were they they dancing? or Were they just walking? Like, what was going on here? What was the walking about? That's cool. But not only that, there's the fourth person in the fire. One whose appearance was like a son of the gods. There was a noticeable distinction between this individual and the others. And many biblical scholars refer to this fourth person as what they call a Christophany, or a physical appearance of Christ before his incarnation. So Christ in the Old Testament. We do not know for sure, but as Ian Duguid points out, it is a physical demonstration of God's presence with believers in their distress. God did not simply rescue his servants from the fire. He sent his personal emissary to pass through the fire with them. Amen, Amen, church. Sometimes God is with us to remove us from the fire, right? But sometimes he's with us to take us into the fire, And both instances show us that God is with us and that God is faithful. So what a beautiful foreshadowing of Jesus Christ in the gospel. We too have disobeyed. But this time we've disobeyed and rebelled against the true king, the God of the universe. And our sin, our idol worship, deserves the fire of God's wrath and eternal punishment. Our sin separates us from a holy God. But Jesus, but Jesus. Guys, Jesus is unlike anyone. He is truly amazing and truly worthy of worship. Jesus didn't look for a way around the fire. He didn't run from the fire. Jesus went directly into the fire of God's wrath and bore our sins, took the punishment that you and I deserve on the cross. And now our outcome is secure. Heaven is our home Because Jesus secured it. It's not us. It's not our doing. It's not how good we are. It's how good He is. So let's read on in verse 24 and 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste, declaring to the counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. I know I'm repeating here, but I want to emphasize something. Point number four, worship in suffering, God is near. Worship in suffering, God is near. Church, we have to remember God sovereignly placed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon. He allowed for their families to be taken captive. They experienced suffering and persecution for their faith. And God was sovereign over their being called out for not bowing. God had placed them at this specific time and place for his purposes, one of which was to draw them closer to himself through suffering. When these young men were thrown in, they learned of how great and how mighty their God is in a way that could not be replicated had they not been thrown in. And I want to just illustrate this with a quick story, a very personal story. But it was 2012. Katie and I had been to Thailand about not quite two years. She was pregnant with Elijah. She was about six months pregnant. And we were in the middle of language school. I remember coming home and getting a phone call. It was from my older sister. And I remember taking off my shoes to enter the house. I remember the squeaky sliding metal doors. I I can see it like it was yesterday. And she says, Bob, it's dad. He's not okay. Mom found him, and he's had a stroke. He's at the hospital, and we don't know what's going to happen. You need to come. And when news hits like this, you don't really know how to respond. And so I remember distinctly walking to the stairs of our house, and they were termite-ridden stairs, and I remember banging my fist, saying, God, please don't take my dad. And I remember the tears, I remember the uncertainty, but what I remember most of all was the comfort of God's Holy Spirit and the prayers of God's people. I remember sending out newsletters and social media posts asking for prayer, and I remember such a peace that flooded my heart and Katie's heart. To this day, I have not experienced that level of comfort and peace from God that I experienced during that trying time. And my my dad did have to pass. The ventilator was removed, and he passed away. But that experience showed me how truly God is close to the brokenhearted and saves those in crushed in spirit, we are crushed in spirit. And I want to brag a little bit about how kind our God is with this story. Because during this time, in the early morning, my mom, she she just ran outside. She, She was distraught. She ran outside, asked for help. One house had its light on. She runs to that house. And the neighbor helped her call 911 and was a true godsend. And I got to talk to him later, and he told me he doesn't usually wake up that early, but he felt led to read his Bible that morning. He told me he was reading his Bible when my mom knocked on the door. Isn't that amazing? Our God is amazing. And so, church, I want to remind us with this story that our God is the living God, He's not just words on a page, but he is living and active. He's not a textbook. The God of the Bible, it's not not just about learning new facts about God. It's about a personal relationship. And God chooses to reveal himself through the words of the Bible. That's how we get to know him. And so church, when God has you in the fire, either to it or through it. When you are in the trials of life, he will often draw so near. And guys, I can look out over this room and I know it's full of stories. Full of stories of God's grace in your life and his mercy in a way that only he can show you. So church, remember that when you are suffering or you are in trials, God is with you. So church, hear these words of comfort written about 200 years before the story of the fiery furnace. They come from Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Again, church, maybe you are in a fire of sorts right now. If you are not, one will come. As we said here, get a healthy theology of suffering. If you are in the fire, though, know that God is near. He is with you. Cry out to your God. Point number five, my last point. Worship results in God receiving glory, the only one truly worthy of our worship. I like the little acronym, WOW, worthy of worship, right? 26-28, 26-28, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, and the prefects, and the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these young men. The hair on their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. King Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own. So God shows up in a big way. King Nebuchadnezzar puts on this show. He puts on this image of gold and invites all these people. He gets this gathering, and then God turns the tables. It was a big setup for God to display his glory to the peoples of Babylon. So now all, and as Tim mentioned, the satraps and the Prefects, everyone's there. Scripture says it. Now they see God's might and power, not King Nebuchadnezzar's. It is clear who the true sovereign king is. And their hair wasn't even singed. The only thing that got burned up was the the rope that held them together and the guys that tried to throw them in. King Nebuchadnezzar then says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Wow, church. Wow. So church, the one point I want you to take from this is there is only one who is truly worthy of our worship. And so if the points are on the screen, I want us to just see how Jesus... He, he, is, he is seen in all these points. Worship of the created over the creator. Jesus was never created. He is above all created things. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is preeminent. All things were created by him and for him. He is worthy of our worship. Amen. Worship when put to the test. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He withstood every test. Satan tempted him in the wilderness to bow down and worship, and Christ refused him every time. He aced the test. Worship no matter the outcome. Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. He fully surrendered to the will of God, and the outcome was public shame, a brutal death on the cross, and worst of all, he experienced the wrath of God in our place. Worship in suffering, God is near. Jesus knew suffering. He experienced the fire of God's wrath in our place. He bore the punishment that you and I deserve. And he's described as a man of suffering in Isaiah 53.1. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. And his suffering led to us, his people, being brought near. And last point. Worship of God results in God being brought glory. The only one worthy of our worship, Jesus' life. His death and resurrection was the perfect offering. Nothing brought greater glory to God than that. So the, ju- the band, you can join me on the platform. Church, we have a Savior like no other, and He alone, Amen. not God plus, but He alone is worthy of our worship. Yes. Your God is not a tyrant king of Babylon. He is a God who came down from heaven, took on human flesh, was beaten and killed on a cross in order to save us from ourselves, us, our sin. He loves you that much. And I like cheesy acronyms and RTR, Roll Tide Roll. Not a Bama fan, but that's what I came up with. So his application today, church, I want us to repent. Let's repent of our idolatry and turn back to the only one who is truly worthy of your worship. And then trust. Trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You cannot, I cannot earn our salvation by our works. Jesus paid it all. And lastly, this is so simple, but church, let's read our Bibles. Okay, get alone with God every day. Jen Wilkin puts it well. And speaking of the Patricks, I saw this in their bathroom and I heard the quote many times, but thought it was awesome. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. As Jen Wilkins said, so you can't really know God if you're not in your Bible. Church, God is so personal. We have the opportunity to hear from him every single day, to learn about his character, to fall on our faces and worship before him. And you want an easy way to get into the word? This is super simple. There's an app that you can download. It's called the Shine Bible Alarm. It will literally play you scriptures when you wake up. An easy way. If you just know where to start, find find scripture but maybe you're here today and you don't know this great Savior of ours. You've heard of Jesus in the Bible, but you don't know him in a personal way. Can I challenge you this morning? Pray to him. As we sing over the next few minutes, simply pray something in your heart like, God, this is all new to me. I'm a mess. I don't know what to do, but I know I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. Please lead and direct my life. And if that's you after the service, come find me or one of the pastors, and we'd be glad to help you grow in your walk with Christ. So as we are about to sing, I also want to say you are welcome to come. Kneel before our God. Come and do business with the Lord. Maybe you have sin to confess, or you just want to simply kneel in praise and adoration of your King. Church, come. Come. Let's praise our Savior with song and worship Him for the amazing God that He is.